0: So I always talk about the three e's of successful investing successful business and entrepreneurship and that is uh, education experience and entourage right mm-hmm. you just talked about that you educate yourself in a way that I have never met anyone else that does you know these these authors you're reading books you're studying things you really have this education you obviously have a ton of experience as well right but then you've realized and I think you've realized this more in the last couple of years tell me if you're if I'm wrong but how that, that you can't scale yourself that as smart as you are as good as you are at what you do, you are not capable of scaling just based on education and uh, experience alone. And that is where Entourage comes in. Right now, you have scalability up to as far as you want to go because you have other brains that have that education and have that experience and you can play them into your journey. And I think that's where the magic happens. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, Tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb.
1: Today on the show we have Jeremy Goodrich of Shine Insurance. And you know, this was a really interesting conversation and Uh, Jeremy is an incredible storyteller, obviously being in the insurance business, he has a lot of stories to tell, but we also break down how to actually evaluate risk and what are the three types of risk and how you can think about building a mental model in evaluating risk on new opportunities. And we dive deep into that. Also kind of looking through the lens of a passive investor, Jeremy invests passively into real estate as well. So asked a lot of questions around that too. And business ownership and entrepreneurship. He's an educator at heart. He's a school teacher turned business owner and investor. And I think you're going to find a lot of value in today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Invest for the Win. As you guys know, our goal on the podcast is to provide unique insights into the private investment world by not only using our own experience navigating transactions in today's marketplace, but also diving into stories and perspectives of experts in private investing and business operations. And today, on today's show, we have Jeremy Goodrich of Shine Insurance. So today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is evaluating risk. Mm-hmm. Jeremy's also going to talk about insurance and passive investing, commercial real estate, And um, I'm excited about this conversation for a multitude of reasons, but evaluating risk, one of the most complex, but also important things that investors need to be thinking about. And I've done a ton of research on risk. We've written extensively about the different types of risk. And uh, Jeremy and I have shared some LinkedIn posts and comments back and forth together on the topic as well. But first, let's give a little background of Jeremy. Jeremy owns Shine Insurance Agency. He's a teacher at heart. And he simplifies insurance by giving step-by-step guidance along the way. Before Shine, he was an elementary school teacher, helping kids fall in love with art, math, science, and writing. Former students always remember learning to play hockey in gym class, opening epic businesses in a virtual world called the Businesses Project, and learning (laughs) to use a sewing machine. After 13 years of teaching, he decided it was time to change the way people feel about insurance. Jeremy carried the heart of an educator over, and I can speak to that, and he's been making insurance simple for first-time home buyers, real estate investors, business owners ever since. This is pretty awesome. This is probably my favorite part of Jeremy's uh, bio here. Most days, Jeremy can be found helping real estate investors by shooting them ballparks, reviewing their policies, and making insurance work for their bottom line. Obviously, as, a, as an operator myself, that's very, mm-hmm. very important. He's also the host of a multifamily real estate podcast and the host of YouTube's number one watch independent insurance agency. Man, Jeremy, I've given a a brief overview of who you are and your experience, man, but tell us through your eyes, starting with how you got going in this industry, like that pivotal moment when you were looking at your your life and your career and you said, okay, I'm jumping into business ownership, I'm jumping into the insurance space, no longer gonna be an educator of children, but educator of business owners and one of the most important pieces of their business.
0: Well, Logan, thank you for having me on the show. I really see you as one of the people I look up to to in this industry. I look for what you have to say. I look for the journey that you're on to provide waypoints for me as well in my journey. So thanks for giving me an, an opportunity to engage with you and to really just hear the things you have to say about risk. So. I did switch from being an elementary school teacher to ultimately starting an insurance agency and then digging into, right now I'm 100% a commercial real estate uh, risk manager and insurance advisor. And um, I did it because teaching, you know, wasn't making my pocketbook work probably more than anything else, right? I mean, there was a bottom line issue of my debt was growing, my income You know, I made $27,000 a year for 13 years. It never really changed over the course of that time. I just couldn't live off of that amount of money. And while I love being a teacher, I enjoyed the time. In fact, in my bio, I think I mentioned education like four times or something, maybe a little bit too much. Um, But I I love that. I love that as a part of who I am as a person who I see myself uh, as and how I contribute to the world that we live in. Um, But it just wasn't making ends meet. And so I had met my uh, wife and business partner about three years before. She's a third generation insurance agent. Her uh, family agency had been sold to a big conglomerate and she was ready to do something new. So we combined those two things together. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I've had multiple different businesses. And so we just really tried to take that teacher's mindset into an entrepreneurial journey that I've been on for about nine years. And I'm really looking forward to digging into in this conversation.
1: Absolutely. And your wife's name is McKenzie, I believe. And yes, that's so correct. Yep. McKenzie and yourself, you're still working together at Shine, correct?
0: That is correct. Yep.
1: Okay. So before I get into my list of questions that I want to ask, uh, as a married man myself, uh, I would love to hear your uh, top tips in, in regards to, I know a lot of listeners probably are thinking about, or maybe they already do work with their significant other. Um, any top tips on how to do that successfully? and make that a partnership that really works. And then how you can be husband and wife um, right after that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So here's, here's two or three things that we've done. One is you have to create Clear roles in your business. What is it that you do? And what is it that I do? And it depends on personalities. There are absolutely couples out there who can mingle in each other's space, work in each other's projects, be kind of stepping on each other's toes in a good way. And that works. In my relationship, it does not work. We have to have really, really clear silos that we work in. She does a lot of the HR. She does a lot of the finance. She does a lot of sort of the running the business side of our business. And she does that really, really well. That's a piece of the business that I don't do that well. I'm more on the marketing, the brand, the sales. This is the side that I'm on. And that's how we've sort of set these things apart. When we started the, the agency, she was like, my dad wanted me to sell, sell, sell. He always wanted me to sell. I hated sales. I don't like sales now. I don't want to be a salesperson." I want to run a business, and I was like, I, I, I don't know anything about sales, but I'll do it, you know. And and so, you know, that's how we separate. So I, I think that's the first thing. The second, the second thing is you really have to designate times that your business partners and times that your husband and wife, right? So uh, and my wife is really really good about this. You know, there are certain times when we talk business, and we really can't talk business any other time. Some couples can talk business all the time, and that works. In our relationship, it doesn't. It creates conflict and it changes the way I think. Particularly for Mackenzie, uh, she her brain wants to be in business mode or it wants to be in home mode, and it can't put those two things together. And so that awesome. I have to respect that. So those are those are the two big ways that we really uh, make uh, owning a business together work as long as along with being a happy married couple, which we absolutely are.
1: Well, I think that's extremely important. You know, one of my favorite books when I was young and getting married was uh, Dr. Henry Cloud's book, uh, Boundaries. And um, it was a fantastic read. If anybody hasn't checked that book out, I, I highly recommend that. But also, so it sounds like you put really clear boundaries in place. But also, you know, in regards to you not being a salesperson, right? I mean, Daniel Pink would argue that everybody is in sales, and and some yeah. of the best salespeople are educators. And so I uh, I can just say that uh, you're a fantastic salesperson because of the way that you go about educating your clientele base. So um, just a couple of things. I appreciate you, uh, us going off the cuff there just a little bit, but yeah. I, I want to get back to kind of just in regards to sales and marketing and building a business entrepreneurship. You have an extensive background in insurance and teaching and evaluating risk. How have you positioned yourself as an expert and a thought leader in that space? What's really moving the needle for you guys?
0: I think the first thing you have to do is idea, identify the ideal client that you're looking for, right? In my world, I want to work with as a service provider to commercial real estate investors across the country, and that's what I do. If you're a real estate investor, you want to understand what market you're working in, right? What asset class you're working in, what role you want to play on the GP team. So I think that's number one: is who it, who is it you're working for. The second one, and you talk about this a ton, is why. What is the purpose behind what I'm doing, right? I'm there to. Try try and change the way people feel about insurance. Insurance is like this sort of crummy feeling thing that you always feel maybe you're being taken advantage of. But the bottom line underneath insur- insurance is we're all actually putting money in together so that when something bad happens to one person, it doesn't crash their business. It doesn't take away all of their money. It, they can be financially made whole, right? So I'm here. One of my value systems, one of my whys is to make that change. For you as a commercial real estate investor, are you trying to make better places for people to live? Are you trying to lift up a community in some way? Are you trying to make a bunch of you know, money so that you can be a philanthrop- do philanthropy? in whatever way makes the most sense for you. So I think those are the foundational things uh, around who it is you're working for. And then the last thing is on that marketing side, how are you just adding value to those people's life? I read a book, Utility, by an author, Jay Bear, who I love, is a great marketing expert. And it's that basic framework. Now, more and more people are doing this now in 2022. When I was reading this in 2013, it was a little more novel, right? Where you just pick those things, your why and your ideal client avatar, and then you just do good stuff for them. You just go out and create quality education for for them, help them to be able to move forward in their journey. And you will obviously be aligned as a thought leader in that space as well. So I've continued to just try and do that, try and educate people on the topic of risk and real estate ownership. And that's really been my model from 2013. And it's continued to make sense for me.
1: Yeah, totally uh, makes sense. I think that You you know, your point about the ideal customer, who's your client is extremely important. I mean, when you think about your messaging and you think about your thought leadership and positioning in the marketplace, I mean, you know, commercial real estate is a huge Uh, Industry, It's a major component of GDP. And then if you add in residential housing in in that industry, it's massive, right? I mean, and so you think about that, there's so many niches inside of that. And so for us, you know, as a business, we've always thought about, okay, well, you know, we live in what we call deal states and places that, you know, don't go up and down and all around. It's pretty steady eddy. And, yeah. um, you know, tried to really think about how did that, how does that position for investors and, and, and for us, it's, it's cash flow and its basis and it's affordability. And that's played out well over the last couple of years, I think. And, and I think that's uh an important thing to think about. We're not chasing projects in the Carolinas and Texas and Florida, because guess what? There's a thousand of FTWs in that, in those spaces that are dominating and they have a competitive advantage. And I always like to talk about competition. You know, I, uh, I hate competition, but I love competing. Right. And <laughs> right. so <Yeah. laughs> it's like yeah. my one of my posts I put out there is like, you know, that was, went viral or whatever. It's like, look, I, I'm I'm not a very competitive person, but when you're competing for the same Assets or the same clientels, or you, you you have to figure out a way to differentiate yourself. And there's so mm-hmm. much writing around this, you know, the blue ocean strategy and all these different things. And for us, you know, it's also you need to be an expert. And so for you, thinking about being an expert, you've niched down in commercial real estate investing, right? Like I talk to a lot of folks in the insurance space. And I'm like, okay, so what's your specialty? Well, you know, I do a little bit of this and I do a little bit of that. Yeah. And I do. And so bringing an owner's mindset into the uh, insurance world and into evaluating risk, I think is so important as it's not just a vendor relationship. I need somebody that's thinking about this asset, this investment, as if they were owning it themselves. And I know that you have not just taken that to heart, you have implemented that in your own business. And I think your client's uh, definitely appreciate that. So um, just wanted to add that uh, component to that. So being in the business, you know, we're sitting here, uh, it's 2022, you know, it's kind of a unique period of time. Um, you've been in the business for some time. When you think about where we're at just right now in the business cycle and in all these different things as a business owner, how are you evaluating like the next six months? You know, what is your thought process? Has much changed? I've talked to some CEOs and business owners that are are like, hey, we're we're highly susceptible to recessions, So we need to do certain things. And then there's other ones that like, we put a lot more into marketing and sales at this time to gain market share. You know, what is your thought process right now since you've been able to, to be in business for quite some time and, and probably been through some ups and downs? Where's your headspace at with that?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, where we're at for our business is very similar to where a lot of commercial real estate investors are. And that is there's less room for mistakes. You know, in 2020, 2021, uh, there was room to make some mistakes, especially in your purchase process, and still get away with a business plan that maybe wasn't perfect. Um, right now, especially if you're acquiring property in the commercial real estate world, as you well know, um, you know the business plan has to be tight. The cap rates are tighter. The profitability is going to be tighter. You have to make better decisions. It doesn't mean there aren't great opportunities out, late, out there. There absolutely are, and there may be more and more good ap- ap- opportunities coming here soon. I think from my perspective as a service provider to the commercial real estate world and a a LP investor, um, I'm coming from the same scenario. I have less room for mistakes, but I've structured my business to be prepared for that, right? I'm prepared for changes in scenarios. I I have one other vertical that is a part of Shine, which is just home and auto insurance in local Bloomington, Indiana, right? So I can say, well, if things are changing in the commercial real estate world, which they aren't for me right now, but I'm prepared should i put more energy into that other vertical so there's some diversity i'm not 100% all in across all my active income spaces in one thing but also just in the commercial real estate space i think people are looking for more information they realize that you have to have a better plan and that brings us kind of to risk management right risk yeah. mitigation if you have to have a better plan and that is all risk management is is having a quality plan that you can make great decisions on quickly. yeah. And so I think from that business perspective, I'm not making any big changes. I'm making sure that I have market share, that I'm articulating the value of working with me And I think that I'm seeing fewer deals than I did in 2021 and 2022 because fewer people are buying properties. Um, But that gives me the capacity to establish deeper relationships with people that have portfolios already. And so that's probably the shift that you're seeing in my business model, right? So you have the ability to pivot because you've been through it and you know it, and then you just move based on what is being provided to you. Yeah, no
1: doubt that uh, transaction activity has fallen. Um, you know, not off of a cliff, but it's definitely declined. Um, there's clear signals on on why that is, and you know the biggest one being: look, sellers are still very um, you know adamant about holding on to prices that you know they saw the last 24 months. Well, guess what? You know, the cost of capital is rising, but mm-hmm. at the same time everybody's like, well, are our cap rates going to go up, you know, or what's going to happen? You have to look at the fundamentals. And when I evaluate the fundamentals, I mean, what is the percentage of new mortgage debt versus uh, as a percentage of GDP? And Mm -hmm. what how much capital is actually sitting in dry powder. And there are certain metrics that you can look at to say, look, we've got $4 trillion here. There's $5 trillion there. It's all looking for yield. Everybody's scared. A lot of people are scared of the stock market. And so where does that go? It usually goes to tangible assets, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to bash any type of cryptocurrency or anything. I invest in that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, where do people go? It's stuff that they understand. and It's tangible a lot of the times. And so I think that, um, you know, after reading, uh, Ray Dalio's most recent book, The Changing World Order, and understanding where his mindset is. You know, I and, and talking to a lot of economists on this podcast. You know, I think that uh, more and more people are going to be open to looking at commercial real estate, and there's still a lot of capital that's looking to be placed into those projects. So I don't see kind of a, a big, you know, uh, you know, wave of, of prices going down. But what I do see is opportunity looming. You know, when, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's going to be fragmented. But the only way that you capitalize on that is if you have relationships and you've taught people what you're looking for and we are big on that like every person in our company needs to know what we do how we do it what we're looking for so they can communicate that to vendors to investors to anybody that they're speaking with on a, on a weekend playing golf they're talking about what we're we're up to and people need to know what that is and so i'm curious as you've grown your business, I have no idea how many, you know, employees that you have, but right before we jumped on, you were talking about a staff meeting, right? Um, How have you implemented kind of a strategy for people to message and communicate, you know, on your behalf, maybe not on the sales and marketing side, but as they're talking with people, how have you gotten, you know, people on the same page in regards to the messaging, Um, especially right now, just in regards to the conversations that they're having?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I just want to add a little bit to what you just said there because I think there was a lot of a ton of real value there, and I agree with you that there's a ton of capital available, and probably more and more capital will become available as people turn to real assets, as you just so articulated, articulately described. The product is the problem, right? Product availability right now, deals available to do are limited. I have clients. You know, I have lots of clients who tell me about selling their properties and purchasing properties. And some of the sales that I've talked to folks about are insane. When they heard how much the person would give them for their property, a hundred unit complex in Indianapolis comes to mind. I talked with an owner yesterday about it. He was like, I wasn't interested in selling. I had no interest in selling. When I saw that number, I suddenly had interest in selling. I have no idea how they're going to make any money off of that. But sure, I'll sell. And so I think we'll continue to see that because there's not just a magical addition of inventory unless you're on the development side, which is a fascinating place to be right now. Um, As far as messaging inside, of uh, my company. To me, it's just all about brand from top to bottom. So I you, it's it's back to that why, right? You create your mission. You know why you're doing what you do. You put values underneath it. What are the things that we can do to achieve that mission? And then we do the tasks oriented. If you've ever obviously read Traction or other bo- books like this, you'll recognize what I'm saying here, right? And so everything works toward it. When you're hiring people, they immediately understand what it means to be a member of the Shine team, what types of personality attributes we're looking for, right? And so all across the board, we're attracting a story. We're making one brand that says, says the same thing. Look, you don't love dealing with this thing. We understand that you don't love dealing with this thing. We're going to make it as easy to deal with as possible and maybe even make it interesting to you to be able to see how managing risk can increase the profits in your portfolio. And so I, I hope that our team members are out there talking about where they work talking about what they do and at least talking about the positivity and the quality of their brand, if not the the details of the topic itself. So the messaging starts with that why it starts with what we're saying at the top. And then it just feeds out from there to everybody. And it makes hiring easier. It makes bringing the right person, putting the right person in the right seat. It makes it a lot easier. And we really, as we built this out, learned who was in the wrong seat and either let them move on to a place that would, you know, hire them, For the right seat, or a lot of folks, we said, you know what? You're awesome. We love you. You are exactly what our brand needs. But when we look at what you're doing, you're in the wrong seat. Let's move. Let's adjust this. Let's make it work for you a lot better. And we're seeing our our engine work a lot more uh, seamlessly.
1: Yeah, that's a great response. I really appreciate that. Anecdotally, do you, uh, when you're talking with uh, commercial real estate investors or CEOs of businesses, um, and even in your own business, I'm curious to hear, you know, with that brand, and you're trying to convey that with other people. And look, we've been in the office office for two years now, so what, whatever. But um, have you had any anecdotal, you know, evidence or or uh, how has it shown up in your own business with being able to create a culture in regards to, um, you know, trickling down that that brand and making sure everybody's on the the mission and the values are the same? Um, Is it difficult to do in a a remote Setting is my question. And are you seeing or hearing more people uh, be in uh, an office setting? And and how is that set up in your own business?
0: Yeah, so I I think it's interesting. So we are 100% virtual. So everything we do, uh, even though a lot of us are here in Bloomington, Indiana, especially the folks who are part of that vertical I talked about, the local home and auto, our sales folks, and and, and they're all here in Bloomington, but we don't have an office. um, And so we're 100% virtual. I'm seeing
1: But that was pre COVID as well, though, right?
0: I mean, that was. We we had an office before COVID, and then COVID, we all went home and we were like, oh, the business works seamlessly. Everything's great. We really didn't have people ever come into the office anyway. Why did we have an office? And so we adjusted from there. Understand. Um, And I think what CEOs are all over the spectrum on this. I think that some folks really like to have that office, they like to see someone in there, they like to have that personal connection. Um, And they want to have that there. Other folks feel like this virtual thing works really, really well. There's a real preference bias to the answer of that question in my experience. Um, Although I think most people see that virtual can work. Whatever they're doing, it can work and whether they want to work in that environment or not is really up to their their feeling around their brand, their feeling around their culture. We love it. I can hire people, you know, before I was locally had to hire, you know, and now I have team members in Montana, I have team members in North Carolina, I have team members in Illinois, uh, I have a team member in Texas, and I have quite a few team members here in Indiana. So I can hire for quality in a way that I couldn't before.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I also think it, it depends on the size of your business as well. I mean, in regards in, in the type of business that you're doing, um, you know, I, I always look at like downtown Kansas City, and it's definitely not back to, to what it was, you know, pre COVID
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. and, and things like that. So that's, that's one part of it. This The second part is, you know, I think that uh, business owners, CEOs are a little bit uh, Scared um, that you know over the last two years they've had a heck of a time just keeping their own talent, and if you can't be virtual, then they'll go find somewhere where they can be right. Yeah, and so, absolutely, um, I I I I get that part of it. I'm I'm trying to understand, you know, like Dr. Peter Linneman and and Willie Walker. And, you know, this is a this is a great uh, podcast episode that they do on a quarterly. Uh, basis on uh, driven by insights, I believe is what it is. You know, Dr. Peter Lindemann really feels like, you know, people are going to be, uh, you know, coming back to the office and is calling CEOs to do their job and and get them back there. Um, Mm -hmm. He's also over 70, you know, Some I think he's close to 75 years old. So there's a a little bit of that uh, component to it as well. So always just asking that question to get people's perspectives. I appreciate you, you answering that.
0: So back to the. the Can Can I add one more thing? Sorry to keep, but, but one thing that we have that really makes virtual work is a structure, standard operating procedures and a really, really clear training process. So people know from the moment they join our team until they, find full competency in any given element of their role on our team, exactly what success looks like and exactly what those parameters are. And I think that makes virtual really, really work a lot better. Just wanted to add that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a manager or a business owner, I think it could be um, looked as, as as potentially more difficult because you have to be better <laughs> you mm-hmm. have to be a better manager because you're not just you know going over to a desk with somebody and telling them hey this is where to find that it's like look we have to have these sops in place i need you to know what success looks like and i'm not going to be looking over your shoulder because i've never met you in person and we're yeah. going to be working together so and that's
0: the beauty of it that is the beauty of having clear sops clear expectations of exactly what it is i would love to get to a place in my business where we are not not uh, factoring whether success happens based on whether you're there from a given period of time to another given period of time, which is how we're structured right now, but more if you succeed, if you succeeded in outcomes, and if you got up those outcomes done by noon and you came in at eight, then go do what you want to do with your afternoon. Right. You know, and, and I'm working towards that because I feel like that's really what people want. Uh, and as far as an employer somewhere, they can work where they want, they can be done when they want, but they have to perform the successful outcomes of whatever it is that they're doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've even watched my wife work from home for over two years now, and she was going into the office. And uh, I mean, it really comes down to like, look, I can get my job, my, my role done in six hours during the day. and um, yeah. And so if you can implement that and you can have people that are able to do that and don't abuse it, I think it's a beautiful thing. I really right. do. And I'm excited about seeing how kind of the United States kind of transforms over these next few years. I really do feel like this is a big turning point in regards to work. And as our workforce continues to be, you know, younger, and and our, you know, you know, the silver tsunami continues to happen in the in the senior living, it's only going to be younger. And I think CEOs are being are, are getting younger as well, and business owners are getting younger and and um, being more open to those things. And I'm hoping that can potentially rise. You know productivity in our in our country, and um, Mm -hmm. and 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 really just you know create a a rising tide for everyone. And so I'm excited about that, Uh, and I'm I'm curious to see how it plays out. Um, Definitely stuff that I'm watching and researching very very closely, and and uh, my. Thesis right now is it re- just is the same as yours. It really depends on the structure of your business, what your business actually is, and how good the managers are that you have, um, and how strong your business uh, SOPs and, and different things are. So um, hopefully that'll make better businesses out there for, for everybody to, to engage with. Yeah. So in regards to just um, some big mistakes, right, We're, we've talked a lot about business ownership, entrepreneurship, but I'm curious in regards to insurance, commercial insurance specifically, what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen investors and people getting started or, you know, even experienced investors, um, you know, that they've, they've you know, You've, you've seen be precedent, you know, in your in your business, what are some of those biggest mistakes that you see on a regular basis when thinking about insurance? And, um, you know, like you said, it's one of those things that has historically been something that's like, oh, well, this is something I've got to do, give me the lowest cost, and I'll throw it on there. But that could be a big issue for people. And we're going to talk about risk management here very soon. But I wanted to talk about the the biggest mistakes that you've seen in your business, and specifically around, you know, placing insurance on these properties. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the answer is easy. And it's really commoditizing insurance, right? It's exactly what you just said. I want the cheapest thing I can find because I don't care about this topic. I just need to get the number I need to make my pro forma work for this situation. I often say about 80% of real estate investors have insurance policies that are going to fail them when they need them most. And the reason for that is because they went out and they said to four different brokers, hey, uh, I'm buying this new 100 unit property. Can uh, you get me a quote and they went to another broker and did the same thing and went to another broker and did the same thing and the basic premise of how it works from there creates a really bad insurance policy uh, for the owner. So there's something in the insurance world called blocking markets. And so when you reach out to someone and ask them to go get insurance, if you reach out to me for an insurance policy, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go out there to every single market I have available to me and submit my submission to them. And what that does is usually, this isn't always the case, but usually it makes it so no one else can go to that company. So if you've gone to, someone good as the first person then they've blocked out most of the markets for anybody else. There are lots of different insurance companies out there, hundreds of insurance companies, and not every agent has every company. So, you know, there could be different companies that different agents hit, but for the most part, they're the same companies that are willing to, you know, in an apartment complex scenario, there's only so many companies that are gonna say yes. So that first person blocked everything. Those other three people still want that business. And a hundred unit apartment complex might be a 50 or $60,000 insurance policy. That could be a lot of money they make insurance agents usually make about thirteen percent of whatever the premium is. So we're talking about six, seven thousand dollars that insurance you know agent could potentially see. So right. what are those three people that were blocked out going to go do? They're going to go find any insurance company they can find to be able to offer something to maybe win this business, and therein lies the problem. What they have access to generally is going to be uh, lower quality policies that are with less reputable companies. And there may, yes, be a cheaper price But when you have a claim in that situation, it just all goes to hell. And and I think that you see scenarios, and I I give a longer example sometimes of someone I knew uh, who ended up getting a payout instead of $500,000 in this fire situation that they should have gotten had they had a correct policy, they got about $60,000 in the scenario because they bought a policy for $10,000 less than the other option that they had available to them. And so the biggest mistake I see commercial real estate investors make is just commoditizing it and just thinking you can go out and bid like contractors to work on your property it's just an entirely different game and it doesn't work that way
1: yeah that's a great point i mean you get what you pay for most times in life and um or you you overpay for something and somebody sold you a bill of goods but you know, I, I don't think this is one area of anybody's business that they should be uh, trying to skimp on and and try to find the lowest cost provider. Uh, talk about just you know what where the insurance. Um, You know, industry is right now, you know, I mean, I see your post about, you know, we've got rising, um, you know, insurance costs, I think you you, today was maybe just in Texas, um, or something like that. Um, And there's reasons for that. But just talk about how it's shifted the last, you know, 24 months or what the foreseeable
0: future looks like. I think Texas is a great example because it's so volatile right now. What's going on in the insurance world, and I think describing what's happening there gives you a sense of how the whole thing works. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing in Texas right now is incredibly volatile insurance prices that are rising significantly. I have told people uh, when they're saying, "Hey, I'm going to buy a property four months from now," I'd say, "Yeah, I think that'll be around seven, eight hundred dollars a door. I think you can pencil that." We get to three months later, and then hopefully this will stabilize soon and this will be an unusual scenario. But three months later, we're now talking about $1,100 a door and instead of seven to $800 a door. And this is in North Texas where there's not even uh, coastal exposure. What's happened is a lot of the... Uh, Uh, the claims that happened from natural disasters. So there was a particular freeze, maybe we remember it in 2021, February of 2021, Texas got very, very cold and there was a freeze, especially apartment complexes. We had tons and tons and tons of burst pipe claims, right? And so people were already feeling, insurance companies were already feeling like, ah, Texas, I'm not quite sure. And then suddenly there's this, you know, multiple billion dollar claim scenario. And what we saw is the Nationwides, the Travelers, the State Autos, you know, a lot of the big companies that we've heard have started simply saying no in Texas. And so when companies like that start saying no, then we get a supply issue, suddenly Everybody who would have gone with those companies is now looking to other companies that are still there. Meanwhile, a company called Strata basically collapses in, in uh, Texas, collapsed uh, just in this last year. The complex, you know, it gets involved with reinsurance and all sorts of other things. But this company that has been one of the biggest property insurers in Texas collapses. So now we got all these insurance companies saying no, and another insurance company that's collapsed. And so everybody who owns properties that were insured there are looking for insurance as well. We have a huge supply problem. And when you have a supply problem, anyone who knows basic economics, the cost of something is going to go up. And so I think a lot of times we think about insurance is just this magic thing that has an unending supply, and Texas is a great example right now of how, no, that's not true. Oftentimes insurance companies will just put their hands up and run out. Uh, this happened in in Florida in 07, 08. Florida's used to high prices, right? Texas right. is just having high prices come in. And so they're not as used to it. And so, you know, commercial real estate investors are underwriting a certain way, and then they get close to closing and it's a completely different number. And uh, that's an example that was me. That's maybe an extreme example, Logan, but it is an example of how how it works. You know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And are the current owners that um, maybe have to just renew? Um, maybe they were with Strata or Travelers or Nationwide, um, and their renewal is coming up. Are they also having to find a new insurance provider? And so that's also an ex, you know uh, a cost that's increasing for for those real estate investors.
0: The Strata program would be an example of yes. When a a program collapses, it's just you get a cancellation at the end of your annual term and you got to go out and shop and find something new. For most of the others, the Liberty Mutual, the Nationwide, the Travelers, you know, some, my advice often to Texas property owners right now is stay put, even if you've got a 10, 15% increase at renewal. I mean, I'll shop and look and see what we can do, but oftentimes, you know, most companies are not going to cancel you if you're already in their program, um, unless something happens, claims, things like that. Um, but just getting new. So yeah, if you're, if you're listening to this episode, you're a Texas investor, you've got coverage and you get a renewal that's at, you know, 15 even 20% increase. Yeah, you can go out and look and see if there's better options, but there's a high likelihood that staying put is going to be your answer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. You know, I read uh, Charlie Munger's book, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac. And I know one of um, Berkshire Hathaway's big businesses is float, and um, they're they're in the insurance space. I'm sure in, mm-hmm. in many other ways as well. But um, it was always curious. I was always curious to to understand, you know, where the money comes for uh, these these insurance companies, right? I mean, and, and you hear about these. Um, I was playing golf the other day, playing with an attorney that. You know, represented people that are suing big companies. And I think it was Mm -hmm. uh, Geico, maybe, was in the the story here. Um, If you know which one I'm talking about, there was something where uh, a lady um, did something in a car and and contracted a a certain disease. And it was, you know, they tried to sue Geico. I don't know what the outcome was of this, but um, I'm pretty sure uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger owned Geico or a large Mm -hmm. portion of it. And they were going to fight the heck out of this thing but I, I was just always curious to understand where the money comes for, for these big claims. And you said, multi-billion dollar claim, you know, where, yeah. where could you break that down? I mean, obviously it comes from premiums, but you have to get a start, right? So mm-hmm. um, you, and then you have life insurance companies, I know it's not property casual uh, casualty insurance, but life insurance companies actually investing in real estate as well. So maybe just 100%. break down the different buckets of, of where capital comes from when you, when you have a claim where these big companies are actually breaking this down and, and they're paying these claims out of? I'm just really curious to hear your perspective
0: on that. Oh, I love that question. Okay. So again, very similar to uh commercial real estate in that you have essentially a capital stack. Yeah. And so, you know, your, your base capital stack as an insurance company, and first of all, insurance companies are huge businesses, right? Wow. So they often have times have multiple billion dollars in premium coming in the door. And so your first piece of that stack would be premium coming in the door and being able to pay out Uh, for insurance claims off of premium coming in the door. That would be step number one. Step number two would be off of the investments that you made with the premium that came in the door. So you're constantly investing that money and hopefully making money off of those investments through real estate, through REITs, through stocks, through all sorts of different ways. Every insurance company has a clear portfolio that they're growing and most insurance companies do not make money off of premium right, when we have annual reviews of insurance companies, they usually say their loss, a good loss ratio would be 92 93%, which means only 7% of the premium that came in stayed in the company after wow. that annual term. That's a good loss ratio. Bad loss ratios oftentimes cross over 100%. So if you have a 103% loss ratio, that means that you lost 3% based on the premium coming into your company, which means you have to make moment money somewhere else or you're not going to last. So there's the premium coming in. There's the money you're making off of uh, your investments. And then the third piece of it is something called reinsurance. And so insurance companies purchase insurance policies themselves. Usually these reinsurance policies are for large claim events like hurricanes or large storms. So when you see a big loss like's happening in Kentucky, like the description I described in uh, Texas, hurricanes, things like that. There's some number that 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 insurance company has set up a policy for that when it crosses over from that number and beyond, the reinsurance company is going to take on the rest of that load and pay that out. And so those are really the places that money comes from in claims. Every insurance company has to have a financial You know, there's AM best, which says what their financial status is. So they have to have a whole bunch of money to be able to play pay claims, but then they have reinsurance policies and that's how the bigger claims actually get paid.
1: That's fascinating, man. It just reminds me of how inter, you know, intertwined everything really is. And you know, I always hear about you know global financial crises in sri lanka or el salvador or some other places and i hear a few folks that i follow talk about how that can trickle over into our own economy it's reasons like you just mentioned right i mean there's everything is is intertwined at some level and that's really fascinating to me so thank you for breaking that down you know, mm-hmm. let's, let's get into the method here a little bit just in regards to risk management. So maybe just define, you know, what risk is, you know, how you think about risk. And when you're talking to your clients, um, what what are the steps that you go through when evaluating these different risks? And I'll, I'll add a little bit of color too, but I'm really curious to hear how you first, you know, think about it from a mental model standpoint. Like, hey, here's what risk is. Here are the different types of risks that we need to be evaluating and how you communicate that and have conversations with
0: your clients about that. I love it. So. Risk is just decision making. Mm-hmm. I mean risk is just is is really at its base it's just decision making, right? When we get up in the morning, we make decisions throughout throughout the day. Some of those decisions are more risky than others. Mm-hmm. And that is the premise of managing risk is just managing the decisions we make. So in you know, I would say there's three different kinds of risks, right? There's risks that you can do something about. There's risks that you can't do anything about. And there's risks that you could have done something about had you known about them. Mm -hmm. And I think what I always talk about in my podcast is there's three steps to navigating risk, and that is identifying, understanding, and then managing every risk you have, right? And so in a lot of what we do as business owners, as commercial real estate investors, we first want to identify the risk. If you think about a due diligence process when you're picking up a new acquisition, those checklists, those processes, those people you hire to check the water, to check the sewer system, to make sure that the tenants are actually there, that the rent rolls make sense. Every step you take in due diligence is risk management. The, The risk you're trying to manage in that particular example is Is the decision to purchase this property, the right profitable decision for me. And so what you're dissecting is you're identifying all the different risks. And you're saying okay now if I've done my job in due diligence I've identified this you know large palette of hundreds of risks. You're trying to understand those risks. Okay, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for profitability? What does that mean for the pro forma that I put together? And then finally, can I manage them? Is this something that makes sense that I know how to manage? If the risk is there's only one employer in the entire town, and that is a military base, you've got to decide if that risk works for you right? You've identified it. That's a who's going to be living in my property. You understand it. Maybe you try and dig into what part of the military and whether you think that's going to stick around for a long time. And then you decide, can I manage it or not? And one way to manage risk would maybe say, you know what? I don't want to purchase that property because it doesn't fit into my philosophy and the way that I build business plans and that's all risk is is making decisions and the more informed decisions you can make now you can't have all the information i'm sure you'll maybe talk a little bit about that right but the more you can inform informed you can be in the decision making process the bigger decisions you can make and folks like you logan and other investors who are really killing it are capable of understanding so many things before the decision is even there to be made and so that when the decision's there to be made, you just plug in your systems, you plug in your people, you can make that decision so much more quickly, and you're taking less risk, even though you're making way bigger, and some people may say more risky decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is beautifully said. I mean, things that you can control, things you can't control, and things you could have controlled if you knew about them. And yeah. that therein lies, I think, the opportunity um, for you know, really good investors, because that comes down to knowledge, experience, things that you maybe just don't know about, um, and then it also comes down to relationships. Mm-hmm. Relationships are always twofold; they can bring opportunities, and that's what most people think about relationships. But they can solve problems, and that's where honestly, uh, relationships really come into play. And that's where I've leveraged a lot of relationships. Is hey, we've got a challenge. And I'm curious to know if you have gone through that challenge and how you, if you did, how did you act, assess, and adjust based on that. And I think that's crucial to understand. I mean, I, I love the, the the simplicity of that. I mean, and so then it just comes down to looking at each different asset class that you're looking to invest in and assessing that and looking through all those different risks. And a lot of times, you know, as investors, especially if you if you follow Sam Zell, you know, he looks at risk a lot different than most investors because when everybody else was doing office, he was selling office to Blackstone. Um, mm-hmm. when, and 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 when he in, and, and what was he buying? Manufactured housing, and now what is everybody trying to purchase? Manufactured housing, mm-hmm. and so it's just really curious. And, you know, I, I'm always curious to to understand how those guys think about that stuff. Because, you know, you think about hearing the headlines of all the different pieces of of real estate, and this is going to fail and retail is dead and nobody's coming back to the office and and all these different things. And then you see, you know, really big investors making huge plays on certain things. And it's because they have some sort of experience, knowledge or information that you don't have. And it's like the Google effect, right? Or the Amazon effect. When somebody goes in and Google says, hey, I'm going to pick or Amazon picks... Austin, Texas or something. You, right. I can't imagine the amount of analysis they've done to pick a certain city, right? And then you see all the smaller businesses kind of falling but behind. They're leveraging all of the you know, experience and, and information that these larger companies have. And I think that's really interesting to me as an investor. And I think about our business that way uh, quite a bit is not necessarily what everybody else is doing, but what is the really smart money doing? What Where are they mm-hmm. really honestly putting their capital? You know, and that's really curious. That's a curiosity in my mind is to to learn about those things because, you know, I mean, you think about where most people get their education and their their information, um, it's probably, you know, mainstream media, you know, but I always search out right. folks that are are talking about different things, you know, the George Gammons of the world, the, um, the folks, the Mark Mosses that are really kind of challenging um, the mainstream media. And I just love that in the investing space. So I appreciate how simple that is, but also how effective that can be. So thank you mm-hmm. for bringing that down.
0: Yeah, and just to sum up exactly what you said and focus it on you, because I think you're so good at this. I always talk about the three E's of successful investing, successful business and entrepreneurship, and that is uh, education, experience, and entourage right mm-hmm. you just talked about that you educate yourself in a way that i have never met anyone else that does you know these these authors you're reading books you're studying things you really have this education you obviously have a ton of experience as well right but then you've realized and i think you've realized this more in the last couple of years tell me if you if i'm wrong but how that, that you can't scale yourself that as smart as you are as good as you are at what you do you are not capable of scaling just based on education and uh, experience alone and that is where entourage comes in right now you have scalability up to as far as you want to go because you have other brains that have that education and have that experience and you can play them into your journey. And I think that's where the magic happens. And you even added in something I'd never thought about before, which is part of your entourage is people who are thought leaders, people who are putting out information. Um, They may not be actually connected with you, your brand or your team, but they're people who are advising you from afar.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll just give somebody a shout out. Joe Brown with Heresy Financial Podcast. I mean, you go back and watch his little, you know, 15 minute YouTube videos. The guy is is completely opposite from what's going on in the mainstream media, but backs it up as extremely smart. And, and just folks like that, that I love to listen to. And I I always, I this is the one thing, one of the one things that from Robert Kiyosaki that I really love, he said, there's not two sides of the coin, there's actually three. There's heads, tails, and the edge. And I like to stand on the edge. And I think Mm -hmm. that is so important. But you have to be humble. Humility in being able to stand on the edge get both perspectives, see both sides and then be still be rational. I tell you what, that is what the great investors can do and that's what they have done. That's the Ray Dalios, the Howard Marks, the Buffets, the Munger's of the world. Especially if something's out of their circle of competency and they're just like, "Look, I just don't understand that," right? And that's really really important. Like I love that Ray Dalio said, you know, early on, "Hey, cryptocurrency has no value." I don't know if he actually said that. He said, "I'm not going to invest in cryptocurrency." You actually now, you know, hear him on on talks and he said, "Yeah, it's a small portion of my portfolio, you know? So he is one of those guys that's on the edge, right? He's not going to take one side or the other and he's got a principle for everything to go back to and like you said that's how you eliminate some of those things that you may not have been able to see is by having principles and you go through it so many people are so forgetful and it's kind of a a, you know a fascinating concept to me but you have somebody that says look I I, you know I've been in the business for 15 years and they forget all of the things that they actually went through 15 years ago but if you write them down and you can look at principles like Ray Dalio did you can say man I'm pretty sure 27 years ago, that March, we went through this. And I'm going to go back and look at my principles for that. And you can search for that and you find it and say, this is how I dealt with it. And then you can look at the outcomes. Oh, my gosh, it's like having a crystal ball. And and people are like, why is he so successful? It's because the guy is so methodical about his decision making. And same with Warren Buffett and Charlie Mugger. Charlie Mugger is the most, uh, you know, I think successful, one of the most successful investors of all time. And it's because he studied and he has mental models that he can go back to. And uh, that that creates, you know, um, a sustainable way to make decisions. But you have to be humble enough to be able to do that. And I think that's what I'm striving to do. And then you put yourself, like you said, that Charlie Munger has, you know, Warren Buffett, and you know, I have two business partners. You know, that's where one plus one really does uh, equal three. And when you're making big decisions, it's really paramount to to know that uh, other people's perspectives are so important.
0: So, and I, to be on that edge, you, you have to be humble, but you also have to be a connector. And yeah. I, I hear that as you're talking through all the every single one of these people was able to connect the right people with the with the right decisions. So, to I think maybe the most important. Way to be on that edge is be have the capacity to be a connector, connecting all the information necessary to mitigate and limit the risk in given decisions, so that you can go forward.
1: Absolutely. Couple more questions here, man. I could go for with with you, Jimmy, for a long time, but um, just want to get into the predictions really quickly. What are yeah. where do you see the industry heading? You know, I mean, you're an LP in a lot of you know projects. Um, you talk to owners of real estate all of the time. Um, Just give us your high level, you know, opinion of where where's commercial real estate investing heading? Where's the insurance world heading over the next six to 12 months? And um, yeah, I'd love to hear your predictions there.
0: I love that. Yeah, I think some of it comes back to the beginning of the conversation where we we see hardening, I think maybe hardening is the word that I would think of across the, the scale there in the insurance world we're absolutely seeing hardening I described Texas that's an extreme example, but it's happening all over the country I don't see that ending. Although you all, whenever you have a hardening market, at some point, someone says, you know, it's hardened enough, but there's some pretty good money in this thing. And I'm going to come in and start undercutting all these people who are going up. And so at some point in the insurance world, just like the commercial real estate world, companies are going to come in and start softening it up and bringing that back down. I always look forward to soft markets. It's a lot more fun to be an insurance agent when you can find someone the cheap, you know, a great price for quality coverage instead of having to give bad news all the time. Um, but I think that insurance right now is hardening. I think it will continue to harden over the course of at least the next few quarters, and hopefully we will see mid-2023 somewhere in there where we start to see insurance companies be interested, particularly in multifamily, other types of commercial real estate. We're not seeing it quite as hard, um, although office is real hard because there's a lot of vacancy issues and things on there, Absolutely. but um, you know, I, I think that that's what we'll see on the insurance side. On the commercial real estate side, it is just... I can't describe it any better than just there's less space for mistakes. And I don't see that changing. Although if we do have some of a a, a real estate, I don't think there's going to be any kind of real estate crash. I don't don't see anything there. And I don't see anyone really talking too much about that. But I think if it does soften on prices, then I think there can be some buying and some folks getting in. Someone like me who's early in their LP journey can start to really get into some deals um, and jump on something that's looking pretty good. But it's not there right now, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: my one of my favorite sayings: the cure for high prices is high prices. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Peter yeah. Maluk, the 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 owner of Creative Planning, um, said that on his podcast. I don't know who originally said it, but the cure for high prices is high prices. You know, yeah. and and that's there's a lot of truth to that. So um, yeah. I appreciate that and uh, bringing out the crystal ball for us just a little bit. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask every guest is: what inspires you, and why do you do what you do?
0: Yeah, I think it you know this has been kind of a struggle for me in some ways. I came from being a school teacher. And there was so much inspiration there. People dropped their kids off and trusted me inherently to take great care of them, to educate them, to bring them along in life. And there was, there was no question around my why. Right. And so when I came, when I left that and really did it for money in a lot of ways, right? Like I wanted to be able to take care of my family. It took a really long time to figure out my why on this side. And I almost, you know, especially people make jokes about the, Will Farrell made a joke recently, you know, about like the insurance agent, just like the least interesting person in the world. And so, you know, I really think it's about legacy for me. It's about building a comfortable life for my family. It's about not having to worry about the things that my parents had to worry about. And that I had to worry about for so long as a school teacher. But more than just that, I think it's about making our community better. We really, uh, one of our, our Rise by Lifting Others program is really focused, right now we're focused on uh, homelessness and the unhoused in our local area. Um, and I think that just you know, I'd never grow Scarcity has always been an issue for me. I grew up a pastor's kid, then I was a teacher. And so this idea of being able to give back instead of being the one who's sort of given back to is kind of new. And I think when it comes to legacy for me, that Figuring that out and figuring out how I can serve has been such a blessing in the last, you know, five years really or so to be able to say, oh, this is how I can give back. This is how I can make my community better. So for me, it's really, really simple. It's around legacy, around family, around legacy, around uh, uh, a community, and just trying to do the best I can to continue to educate folks on the things that are valuable.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful, and um, I can say in full confidence, I would be very uh okay dropping my kids off if you were to do them, but we had a we great not, time it was fun we will not get into the uh to the whole debate about the school system right now my my goodness there's a lot going on yeah. uh there glad
0: that, to not glad and to and not be a teacher right now
1: yeah yeah absolutely but if but, but i will say if you were the teacher i'd be dropping my kids <laughs> off <on. laughs> especially if you could teach them how to sew how cool would that be anyways absolutely. that's awesome jeremy this has been fantastic man where can people find
0: more about you and what you do. Absolutely. Shineinsurance.com. If you're a multifamily investor and you want some numbers for penciling, you can go to shineinsurance.com slash ballpark, answer nine questions, yes or no, and we'll give you an immediate ballpark for your uh, penciling. Um, So you can use that. And then uh, you know, our podcast is Managing Commercial Real Estate Risk, where we really do risk management assessments with our uh, folks we have on the show and talk about risk in general. So yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah. Jeremy is an incredible storyteller as well. If you guys want to follow along some of the craziest claims and how they played out and all of those different pieces, definitely give Jeremy a follow on LinkedIn as well. If you want to get some numbers really quickly for your property, head over to that website. We'll drop that in the show notes. Jeremy, thank you for your time and insights, man. I know our listeners are going to find this valuable and I surely did. I appreciate you spending some time with me.
0: Logan, it's always a pleasure. You're really great to follow yourself. And I I love learning from you as well. Thank you for tuning in to invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.